Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Swan Huntley, author of the new novel, Getting Clean with Stevie Green, The Goddesses and We Could Be Beautiful. Swan earned her MFA at Columbia University and has received fellowships from McDowell and Yotto. Her writings have appeared on Salon, The Rumpus, Go Magazine, and McSweeney's Internet Tendency, among others. Swan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jeff. What a lovely radio slash podcast voice you have. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, <laughs> if someone hasn't yet heard about your novel, Getting Clean with Stevie Green, how would you describe the new novel? So my super quick elevator pitch for it is this is a book about a newly sober decluttering guru who is forced to face her own messy truth. Uh, the book takes place in my hometown of La Jolla, California, which is in San Diego, for people who don't know that. Mm -hmm. And um, it is about a woman, Stevie Green, who, after a long time away from home, moves back home to start a decluttering business. And, and it, it's essentially about her confronting her past. There's something that happened in Stevie's teenage years during high school that she's still never been able to figure out. She's, she thinks she knows who wronged her in high school, but she starts to become unsure over the course of the novel. Um, and I really just created that drama as a way uh, to show a character who's dealing with their past. Um, so that, that's kind of an ongoing engine of the book. And then in the meantime, Stevie's very confused about her sexuality and her relationship to alcohol. And I'm curious, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write Getting Clean with Stevie Green? You know, it's so funny. I think um, most of my writing is so, I really try to make it as subconscious as possible. I really try to let go as much as possible and just kind mm -hmm. of go with whatever comes out of my head and not analyze it. But when I think of ideas, it's it's very analytical. It's like very scientific and boring. I'm like, okay, where should I set this? Oh, I should do a California book. I haven't done that yet. Okay, who should this be about? Oh, maybe it should be sort of based on my own experience as an alcoholic and a gay person. I haven't used any of that yet. It's like making a boring soup, you know, and I'm always thinking what <laughs> what will sustain my interest for, for 300 whatever pages. So, so do you consider organizing and cleaning an addiction? <laughs> um, I mean, for sure, I think it can be. Anything can be an addiction if you do it too much. Um, that's not something that I've personally dealt with. And I'm not sure that it's, uh, it's necessarily framed as an addiction in this book. But I think, sure. you know, when we feel horrible inside, a quick way to feel better is to make the outside look good. Uh, it can be very calming, um, and it and it creates the illusion of having it all together, you know, which is something that Stevie is is struggling with. I think she says a couple times throughout the book, I, "I I'm I'm not a see through person." Like she's like reminding herself, "I'm not a see through person." People can't see that I'm struggling because as she's going around giving people a, advice about how to declutter their lives, she's like a total mess, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, can 
Do you think someone can use cleaning as a way to understand themselves? For sure. I think that cleaning can be a way in. I mean, this is kind of Marie Kondo's whole philosophy is that once <laughs> you clean up your, I know, there, we can totally make fun of her. The whole sparking joy thing is like kind of hilarious and weirdly mysterious. Like, what does that even really mean? Um, <laughs> yeah. But I think, you know, she does say in that book, like, it, once you clean up the outside, that's like, that's a portal into looking at the inside, you know, like the the outside. I actually quote Marie Kondo in the beginning of the book, and it's something like <laughs> the external um, mass is like just a symptom of the disorder or like a visual of the internal disorder. Um, so I do think if you clean up your outsides, you know, that then you might it might create more room for self-discovery. It also depends on who you are, though, because some people genuinely do not care about what their surroundings look like i mean like i have some friends who can just work in like a closet like just it would crap all over their desk and like they don't care i cannot function in that atmosphere what does your desk look like uh i'm pretty clean jeff <laughs> uh, <laughs> my brother has called me minimalist adjacent um that was a couple of years ago. So I, I think I need to check back in. I might be a total minimalist now. I do not own a lot of stuff. I have a close relationship with the Goodwill. I go there all the time. Uh, every time something new comes in, I'm like, I get rid of something old. I mean, I'm not that severe about it, but like, I just naturally want to get rid of something old. Um, yeah, don't like a lot of yeah. stuff. So what was your initial writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first novel published? Oh, wow. I, I always wanted to be a writer. Like, I've been confused about so many things in my life. My sexuality and my alcoholism, two main ones. It's like, those things are very much about me. Um, but I've never been confused about what I wanted to do for a job. I just always wanted to be a writer. And as a kid, I was always writing things down. I recorded everything. Like, I have my first zit taped in a journal. Uh, I have like pieces <laughs> of my hair and my sister's hair. Like I just, I was like an archivist and, and just thought it was important to write everything down. And now I have a lot of journals. Um, I got an undergraduate degree in creative writing uh, at a small school in Florida called Eckerd College. And then after that, um, I took a couple of years off and then I got an MFA at Columbia uh, in creative writing. I wrote, I actually wrote two books that haven't been published and will never be published. One was my, my thesis in grad school. And basically my professors were like, oh, this is really good. You should send this out. And I thought like, oh yeah, I have made it. This is awesome. <laughs> and I sent it out. Basically, like agents said your characters are so good but nothing happens in this book like nothing happens in this book so i was like dang i went i finally got over it and this is also like i had like designed the cover of this book i mean i had painted the cover of this book on a canvas like i was like so dead set on this so i finally got over it i wrote a whole nother novel um and sent it out again and agents again were like these characters are so good, but nothing happened. <laughs> so then I got really mad and I was like, oh my God, something has to happen. Like I literally wrote down like 
things have to happen. And I got more focused on plot. Like, I never really care about plot. I think mm-hmm. my books are have a lot of plot, so that might be surprising to people who are reading them. But I'm always interested in, like, a woman drinking a glass of water and how she does that. Like, I don't care about character. You know, the plot is solved in a conceit, which, of course, it is. But you have to have it. You want people to turn the page. Um, so I finally outlined... Uh, and a woman named Ann Hood, who I'd taken a short class with, gave us this, she called it a novel template. And it asks basic questions about, you know, your novel, like, what is the time span? And who are the characters? And what's like a brief outline? So I filled out that sheet. That sheet actually really changed my life, that template. Um, and then I wrote a book in which things happened and everything came together so quickly. I got an agent really quickly. I got an editor really quickly. Um, and that was We Could Be Beautiful, my first novel. That's great. Well, you've mentioned in this interview your own alcoholism. And as you've said, you've writ- you wrote about al- alcoholism in your latest novel. Did that feel uh, scary to you? You know, not really. I think if I had done it, like when I've been sober for two years, it would have, but I've been sober for 11 years now. So it kind of just feels like this is not something that I feel raw about. I just consider it to be part of my identity and, and part of my past and, uh, this, you know, part of my story and something that I'd never really talked about. Um, all of my books are about denial. It's always like a woman in denial, which is why I like <laughs> writing in the first person. Cause we're kind of seeing around what the narrator is telling us. Um, but I do think it ended up being a little more emotional than I had expected. And the reason for that, I believe is because I said it in my hometown. So weirdly that like transported me back emotionally to being 17 years old, Mm -hmm. which was, which I didn't totally expect. And that was not a very happy time in my life. I mean, I don't know how many 17 year olds are happy, but I was not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm curious, are you working on a new novel now? I am. Uh, The novel that I'm working on next is a lesbian psychological thriller. It is about a ghostwriter who goes to the grand estate of a client in East Hampton, uh, where things turn dangerous. (laughs) Well, that sounds fun. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? Oh, man, I really think uh, just the best piece of advice, I could say a bunch of things, but I guess the thing that I would say is just get out of your own way. You know, it's really about just just letting go and like letting your creative brain take over and just putting words on the page and not not editing while you are writing that it's actually impossible to do that. Um, So. Just and if you're writing a novel, I always say this to my students: the goal should be to finish a draft. That's it. Just finish a draft, and then you can go back and see what it is. Sure. Well, I'm curious about your MFA experience. How was that experience for you? You know, I think I really needed to get an MFA because it was important for me to be around other people who were on the same path that I was on. Uh and we're taking it as seriously as I was. I was living in Boston for a couple of years before I got my MFA. And I joined some like writing groups on Craigslist. I actually crafted an entire life 
from Craigslist when I lived in Boston. <laughs> oh, I got like a job, roommate, everything from Craigslist. Thank you, Craigslist. There, there was actually a, there was, I didn't mean to interrupt you. There there was a documentary several years ago. And I honestly can't remember the name of it. It was, I found it on streaming late one night and it was about a guy who basically lived for 30 or 45 days strictly off of Craigslist. He would roll roll into a town and he would like post on Craigslist. I saw that. Yeah. (laughs) I think I started watching that. Um, Yeah. yeah. The power of Craigslist. The power of Craigslist, and it's like still around, you know. It, like I know, are- I know, but they, but they did like uh, they did eliminate their what was it? Their like personals. They like uh, they killed that part of the the site. But anyway, they also killed the et cetera section, which is where I used to find my jobs. Ah, so <laughs> so you're so you're saying? <laughs> oh, uh, you were living in Boston. Oh, right, and so your, your like- MFA. Right, right. Joined some like writing groups on Craigslist and I went to some writing classes at a place called Grub Street and that was all cool. But uh, I think it was I needed to be like in a in a program that people were taking it uh, more seriously. You know, we're really like, I'm going to do this and make this my way. Um, So it was a good experience um, because I met people. I mean, that's really the thing that I walked away from it with is relationships and an understanding of how important it is to look to be good at workshopping and to give advice in a way that it's honest and thoughtful. Um, but mostly it's just the people. Uh, and it was personally, a, a, <laughs> I mean, with, uh, to be honest, like when people ask me how grad school was, I'm like, Pardon me is like, I don't even know. Because for the first year, I w- it was like the height of my drinking. I was uh, so drunk all the time. And then I got sober halfway through grad school. Uh, and so I was like, that's when I really realized, oh, my God, I am insane. Like, I am just like, <laughs> now I'm eating cookies and binge smoking. And like, it was, I mean, I, you know, was not my best self. So it was kind of a great time for that to happen within the structure of grad school, which I didn't think was that hard. You know, you turn in pages every once in a while and you read some stuff, which is fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what novels have you read recently that you enjoyed? Oh man. Uh, I really like Kevin Wilson's most recent book. Um, I'm forgetting the name. Right now. Uh, the nonfiction book that I'm reading right now is 4,000 Weeks about how we only have 4,000 weeks to live if we live to be 80. That's like reminding me of what's what. Um, <laughs> I reread the book Election, um, which kind of informed the structure of Stevie Green. I love that book. Uh, Maggie Shipstead's Great Circle is such an undertaking in terms of uh, the the time that it spans, the voices that it spans. I mean, it's really a genuinely amazing piece of work. Uh, I could keep going, but I'll stop there. Oh, that's great. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels? Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, I have a website, Swan Huntley. At, uh, that's it, swanhuntley.com. I was going to give you my email. <laughs> um, you can even email me too, swanhuntley at gmail.com, S-W-A-N-H-U-N-T-L-E-Y. I also make drawings that I put on Instagram. I started making these drawings actually while I was 
avoiding writing Stevie in the beginning. I had like gone to this art residency and I was like, oh, I don't want to do this. So I just started doodling. So you, you can follow me on Instagram and see some more of my doodles if you want. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Swan Huntley, author of the new novel, Getting Clean with Stevie Green. The novel is on sale now. So go grab a copy. And Swan, thanks for doing this interview. Oh, my God. Thanks so much, Jeff. Have a nice day. Thanks. I awarded myself three points for using the word snazzy. And then I heard my name. Stevie? And a wave of nausea curdled through me because somewhere deep inside, I knew who it was before I actually saw her. Her good jeans and her gray blazer and her very white shirt. So white that it might have been brand new and the coffee in her hand and her hair, which was shorter now, a man's haircut, same as mine, and her mouth. It was a mouth I would have recognized as hers all these years later, even if there hadn't been a face attached to it because it was so uniquely designed. The two peaks of her upper lip, like pointy cartoon mountains, and her broad lower lip, like the side of a canoe, half submerged in water. Stevie, Chris said again, her voice kind of hoarse. Is that you? She shifted her weight. You cut your hair. I didn't know you came here, I said, trying to match her casual tone. My armpits prickled. I wondered if she was reading into my haircut. Even though there was nothing to read into, I was a minimalist. I wanted less of everything, including hair. End of story. I work across the street. She motioned vaguely out the window. Didn't your mom tell you? I don't think so, I said, although right after the words had left my mouth, I wondered if they were true. Mom had told me that Chris was a therapist now, but she hadn't told me where. Or at least I didn't think she had. Yeah, my name's on the sign, Chris said and pointed at the wooden sign in front of the office building that looked like a gingerbread house. It was rich brown with stark white trim and surrounded by a neatly groomed hedge. I'm a therapist now. I sat up straighter, said the requisite, good for you. And because I was so ready, because I'd envisioned this moment so many times, it was as if, in a way, it had already happened. So then it did. Chris, I said, I forgive you. If these four little words came out sounding practiced, that was because they had been, for many years. After I said them, my cheeks burned brighter and froze colder at the same time, and the moment dripped with awkwardness so thick that I might have been seeing double. Chris didn't blink for a long time, her big brown eyes doming out as far as they always had, and maybe slightly more. She was one of those people with eyes set at the precipice of their sockets, protruding like miniature balloons on the verge of escape. They were bulging one second and sensuous the next. And either way, they gave the impression that Chris was both meditative and a risk taker, a thoughtful being who lived comfortably on the edge. The panikin was darkly lit and especially shadowy in the corner I'd chosen, but the honey and amber rays that accentuated Chris's brown eyes glimmered anyway, as if to suggest that somewhere above the clouds, the sky was always blue. In other words, they seemed to suggest that she was enlightened in a way that I was not. She stared straight at me, not blinking once, 
and said in a flat voice, I would never have done that to you. And I sank. I didn't move, but inside I sank. Because I wanted her to say something different now. And after all this time, I thought she would. It's okay if you did, I said, trying to nudge her toward the answer I wanted. I even chuckled, as if to show her that I didn't really care that much. I wanted her to think that I'd let this whole thing go, and that mentioning it now was just a formality, maybe one that spoke to my maturity. I was a fully formed adult person who tackled matters head-on, rather than burying them under pleasantries. Chris pushed her hands into the pockets of her good jeans, her eyes still on me. I'm sorry for what happened to you. It was painful to watch. Then she took her wallet out of her pocket, a plain black leather wallet with no identifiable logo, and pulled a card from it, a simple white card that was thicker and heavier than most business cards. And even though I didn't want to be impressed by this, I was. If you decide you'd like to get together at some point, she said, give me a call. Your mom told me about your new business. Congratulations. I'd love to hear more about it. She tilted her head and smiled. And then she was gone. I wanted to watch her walk out the door and across the street, but of course I didn't watch her at all. Eyes back on my phone, thumbs scrolling on autopilot, I imagined it instead. Chris looking both ways before crossing. Her coffee held a responsible distance from her body in case it spilled because she hadn't put a lid on the cup. And the easy way she walked past her name on that wooden sign, which was in the upper right-hand corner and written in blue. I almost spilled my coffee, I was so nervous. Stevie looked good, really good. I made it across the street, and the second I got into my office, I stationed myself by the window and looked down at the panic and patio hoping to catch another glimpse of her as I listened to the ring, ring, ring of the phone. I was calling Kit. You didn't tell me Stevie cut her hair. Doesn't it look nice, Kit said? A lot like yours, actually. She still thinks I'm responsible for those flyers, Kit. There was a long pause. You know I didn't do it, right? I said. Yes, Kit said. I know you didn't do it. Just then, Stevie walked across the patio. Like a gazelle, I thought. That was how Stevie Green moved. Shoulders held back, long legs gliding forward. She was graceful. She was self-assured. And she was getting into the black Volvo wagon parked right out front, which I should have known was hers. Kit had told me they'd bought matching cars. Stevie turned on the engine, but for a moment the car didn't move. She was probably punching an address into her phone. No, she was talking to someone. I could see her mouth moving. I wondered who it was. I still think Brad Rose did it, I said. Kit had no response to that. I imagined her relaxed face, because her face was always relaxed, taking this in. Even though I liked Kit a lot, I found her annoyingly unreadable most of the time. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, 
always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20.